Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 1. I think you could make the argument that the book of Leviticus is the most neglected book in the entire Bible. I think you could make the argument that the book of Leviticus is the most feared book in the entire Bible. Far too often, Leviticus is the graveyard of Bible reading plans. Many people start out so well on January 1st, reading through Genesis. That's always a lot of fun. Uh, Exodus is a riveting story. And then we run into Leviticus like a wall. it's, It's like all of a sudden we are trying to walk through quicksand. And so we eventually decide to skip forward to the Gospel of John. If that has been your experience in the past, I have some sympathy for that. But the hope here is that we can change your mind. Because actually, Leviticus might be the most important book in the Old Testament in terms of understanding the person and work of Jesus. Not for nothing did John the Baptist introduce the life and ministry of Jesus by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is making a connection there between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the present work and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that connection. The nature of that connection requires us to learn a new concept, the concept of typology. Typology has to do with shapes and patterns. So when we say about Susan's recent behavior, oh, that is so typical, that is classic Susan, what we're saying is that Susan tends to behave in a certain way. There's a certain pattern there, and this recent event matches that pattern. That's typology. Typology is the idea that God acts in certain ways. He establishes certain patterns. Who God is in the Old Testament is who God is in the New Testament. God doesn't change. So here in Leviticus, God is introducing certain patterns, patterns that will be enlarged and expanded upon before finally landing climactically and being fulfilled ultimately in the person and work of Christ. If you have a musical background, then you can think about this in terms of the basic scales that form the building blocks of all complex composition. You have to learn the scales before you learn how to play Mozart. And that's exactly how your Bible is put together. In the New Testament, the apostles are playing Mozart, but they are only able to play Mozart because they learned the rudimentary scales. But the goal is to get past the rudimentary scales and into a proper and mature understanding of the fullness of the gospel as revealed in the person and work of Christ. So Paul, for example, in Galatians 3.24, says that the law was our guardian or teacher. He uses the Greek word pedagogos, which literally means tutor. A wealthy Greek or Roman man would hire a tutor, a pedagogos, to teach his children and specifically his heir the rudiments of academics. The goal was to get him ready to run the estate and to assume the role as head of the family, when the time came. So, for example, Aristotle was hired by King Philip of Macedon 
to tutor his son, Alexander the Great. That's the role played by the Old Testament law, Paul says. Its job was to teach us the rudiments, language, and scales of biblical faith so as to prepare us to recognize, appreciate, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And like a good teacher, the law specializes in analogies, illustrations, and word pictures. That's what Leviticus is. That's what the sacrificial system is. It is the gospel made visible in advance. So in that sense, it is like our modern ordinances, only in reverse. Our modern ordinances are intended to be visible displays of the gospel. So baptism and communion are pictures. Well, so is the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's a picture as well. Andrew Bonner puts it this way. He says, the Lord may use them as he uses gospel ordinances at present to convey light to us and leave more indelible impressions. So by going back to these Old Testament ordinances, we might see something we missed. We might broaden out our appreciation and we might brush up on our basics and rudiments in order to refine our thinking, speaking, and worshiping of Jesus. That's the goal. Now, in terms of structure, Leviticus is a pretty straightforward book. There are basically two major sections organized around a central hinge. Chapters 1 to 15 deal with the various sacrifices and rituals associated with tabernacle worship. Then chapter 16 is the hinge. It describes the regulations governing the annual day of atonement. And then chapters 17 to 27 emphasize ethics, morality, and holiness. So, in essence, Leviticus foreshadows the common arrangement of many New Testament epistles. Many of the New Testament epistles are laid out in exactly this way. Uh, we think of Romans, or we think of Ephesians, or 1 Thessalonians. It's, it's a very typical arrangement. The first half of the letter answers the question, how do we deal with sin? And then the second half of the letter answers the question, how do we live as God's people. So even the shape of Leviticus is preparing us to better understand and engage with our New Testament. We'll provide some other background and orientation as we continue to make our way through the book of Leviticus together. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, now let's just pause here. We'll look at what God said in just a minute, but for now, I want you to notice that phrase, the Lord called Moses. It should actually say, and the Lord called Moses. The first word in this book, in the Hebrew, is the word vaikra, which means, and the Lord called. The Hebrew particle va is a continuative, meaning that the text is positioning itself as a continuation of the story left off at the end of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, the tabernacle has been built. According to all the pattern that Moses was shown and all the instructions that he was given, and when all that was in place, according to Exodus 40, verse 34, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So God was there now in some marvelous and glorious sense. His presence was real and it was visible. Exodus 40 says that after Moses had finished building the tabernacle, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. So you have to picture that in your head. The tabernacle is standing there, brand new, just built, never used. And all of a sudden, the, the pillar of cloud representing the very presence of God descends upon the entire compound 
and all is shrouded in fog. And from inside that fog, the voice of God calls to Moses. That's what's going on here. This entire book was narrated to Moses from inside the Holy of Holies, in, inside the tabernacle, inside that cloud. Now, if you're having trouble picturing that, go back and read Exodus 26 and go back and listen to the end of the word episode that we did on Exodus 26. You can find that on the archive site or using the app. In fact, it might be helpful for you to listen to Exodus 25, 26, and 27. In those episodes, I walked you through all the instructions for the building of the entire tabernacle complex. And that is the context that is assumed for everything we are about to read. The tabernacle would have looked like the compound of an ancient wealthy nomad. There was an outer enclosure, a large courtyard, and then in the middle, a rectangular tent structure that was divided in half. The outer half was open to the priest, but the inner half was the Holy of Holies. Access there was restricted. Moses went in there, Aaron went in there, and then later only the high priest went in there once a year. In that place, in the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat with the cherubim, the angels, whose wings pointed inward toward each other from each end of the top covering of the Ark. And it was from there that God spoke to Moses. In Exodus 26.1, God says, You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them, close quote. So from the outside, the tabernacle tent would have looked rather drab and dreary. The outer layer of the tent was basically a weather cover. But on the inside, the inner layer was colorful and embroidered with cherubim. So Moses would have entered through the cloud and he would have passed through the outer veil and then the inner veil. And he would have come inside this dark, cool inner chamber. And when he looked up, he would have seen the Ark of the Covenant in front of him and the cherubim all around him woven into curtains on the inside. And in that place, over the course of an entire month, he would have heard the voice of God. Remember, Leviticus is basically an excursus or epilogue to the book of Exodus. The narrative itself really doesn't pick up again until the book of Numbers. Most of what we have here is the record of what God said to Moses inside the Holy of Holies about how the Israelites should worship and live as a saved people. So the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Let's just pause here. In chapter 1, we have a description of the various burnt offerings. Three are described here, from the herd, from the flock, and that of birds. From the herd here means an oxen, from the flock means a sheep or a goat. The burnt offering was a whole offering. 
meaning everything went up to the Lord, apart from the unclean parts. We'll get to that in just a minute. But it was a whole offering. Everything was given to the Lord. The purpose of the offering, as we see at the end of verse 3, is that he may be accepted before God. In verse 4, we're going to meet the concept of atonement. And then in verse 9, we're going to meet an expression related to propitiation. We'll get to that in just a minute. The point is that these sacrifices introduce the idea that sinful people and a holy God cannot easily coexist. God just took up residence at the center of the Israelite camp. That's great, but that's a huge problem because God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil, and these people are evil. They are sinners. So how is this going to work? Well, the concept of sacrifice is going to be a big part of what will make it work. As Gordon Wenham says here, peace with God is the goal of sacrifice. As to how that works and why that works, we'll explore all of that as we go along. Let's jump back into the text at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There are a couple of really important things that we need to be careful to see here. First of all, notice that phrase at the beginning of the paragraph, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. The Hebrew is actually a little stronger than that. It literally says, he shall lean his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, thus identifying himself with the offering. This action introduces the concept of substitution, which lies at the very heart of the sacrificial system. Remember, Leviticus is about teaching us the language and fundamentals of faith, and substitution lies at the very heart and center of biblical faith. R.K. Harrison puts it this way, Leviticus teaches that atonement for sin must be by substitution. The sinner must bring an offering which he has acquired at some cost as a substitute for his own life. His formal identification with it is followed by the presentation of the offering to God and a declaration by the priest that atonement has been made. Closed quote. So in this ritual, the Old Testament believer was learning something about identification and substitution. Only when the worshiper identified with the sacrificial victim in some tangible way, and only when that victim spilt his blood for the sins of the worshiper, could that person be accepted in the presence of a holy God. That is the basic lesson being pressed into the Old Testament believer through this ritual. Let's also be careful to notice how engaged the worshiper was in this experience. He doesn't just show up and watch a priest perform a ritual. No, this is an immersive and interactive experience. Gordon Wenham says here, The worshiper brings the animal, kills it, skins it or guts it, and chops it up, 
The priest sprinkles the blood on the altar and places the dismembered carcass on the fire, closed quote. Human beings tend to learn more of what they do than what they see, and this awareness appears to have been factored into the design of this interactive experience. In verses 10 to 13, we see a set of very similar instructions related this time to an offering from the flock. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces, with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One thing we didn't discuss when talking about the burnt offering from the herd is this stipulation that the victim be a male without blemish. Why is that? Some commentators favor a practical explanation. In most agricultural societies, male animals were more expendable than female animals. One bull can service multiple cows, and as most farmers will tell you, it probably isn't helpful to have more than one bull in your pasture. So that may be it. But others see a further anticipation of Christ, and that may be as well. Whether the maleness of the sacrifice is intended to be part of the prophetic significance isn't entirely clear. In the next section of instructions for offerings of birds, no gender is specified. What is absolutely clear is that the offering must be a perfect specimen. The perfection of the offering is absolutely essential. And that aspect of the ritual certainly is caught up and applied to our understanding of Jesus Christ. He was pure and spotless, blameless in his perfection, totally and entirely without sin. Thanks be to God. In verses 14 to 17 now, we have a parallel series of instructions for a burnt offering of birds. In Israelite society, there were people who simply could not afford to offer up a bull or a goat. That was simply beyond their means. And so a concession is made here so as to make this ritual accessible to all. Worship should be expensive. David said that he would not offer to God sacrifices that cost him nothing. But worship should never be inaccessible. Concessions should always be made in consideration of the poor. Verse 14. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, as modern day readers, we find all of this terribly foreign, particularly that phrase at the end, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Why would the smell of a roasting bird or a barbecued goat be pleasing to the Lord? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. That is 
answer one in the children's catechism at our church. So my nine-year-old daughter knows that God doesn't have a body. So presumably God doesn't have a nose. And therefore, what in the world does it mean to describe these offerings as a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Well, the expression likely goes back to Genesis 8.21. After the flood, Noah came out of the ark and he offered up a burnt offering to the Lord from the herd, from the flock, and of the birds of the air. Genesis 8.21 says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Closed quote. So the phrase means that God saw the gesture and responded to it with expressions of peace, satisfaction, and continuing commitment. It is simply a way of saying that God read the gesture and responded positively to the heart of faith that stood behind it. And that's what these rituals are. They are expressions of faith. In and of themselves, they are nothing. But as expressions of faith, they are something. The same thing is true in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 3, verse 21, the apostle says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Close quote. Did you hear what Peter said? He said, so baptism saves you. But then he very quickly clarifies, not in a ritualistic sense, not as though the water itself has some kind of magic property. If if you break into the church, you know, after the service is over and, and you grab some of that baptism water and splash it on yourself, that doesn't do anything. The water is not magical, no, but it saves you if it is a gesture of faith, if it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If, if there is faith in and behind the gesture, then it is pleasing and acceptable in the sight of the Lord. That's what's going on here. That is what is being taught here. Hebrew scholar C.F. Keel says that the burnt offering intends to express complete surrender to the Lord and consecration to a course of life pleasing to God. If that is what the gesture is communicating, then no wonder that the Lord found it pleasing. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.